Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah everybody and welcome home. For the past few years we've always started our programs with this statement and we mean it because community is a place that we all should call home. A place that gives us peace, a place that gives us tranquility and a place that we know is going to be there. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes faith in the Quran, He mentions stability as being a requirement for faith to grow. Asluha thabit wa far'uha sama That its roots are firm and its branches grow to the sky. If we don't have stability, if we don't have permanence, if we don't know that something is going to be there for us, then our faith won't be able to grow. This is why when the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina and made the migration, the hijrah with his companions, at that moment, when they arrived at their new permanent home, he said the beautiful phrase, Afshus salam, spread peace. Why? Because peace can be attained now that we have a place that we can call home. For the past five years, Roots has been able to be a part of so many people's lives, alhamdulillah, by the grace of Allah. And we're so honored to have that be a part of our legacy. But we've been doing it in temporary spaces. We've been doing it in hotel banquet halls, in masjid side rooms, in people's living rooms at home, and in temporary lease spaces where when we were signing the lease, we knew that this was not going to be there forever. But that can change. By the favor of Allah, with our foundational organization, Qalam, we've been able to find this beautiful property here in Carrollton, Texas that will be the permanent location and facility for the Roots Community Space. A place where everybody can feel that tranquility and have that growth of faith that Allah Ta'ala tells us about. We need your help to close on this property. We need you to generously donate and contribute whatever you can, adding your name to this list of people that will help build and construct a permanent home for us to build the model community following the example of the Prophet Muhammad in Medina. Help us make this dream a reality. Visit rootsdfw.org slash home. Assalamu alaikum everybody. Bismillah walhamdulillah. Salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'een. Welcome home everybody. Welcome home. It's good to see everybody here. Alhamdulillah. I hope you guys inshallah got some uh, something to eat. I think we have some left. If you haven't, feel free inshallah. Um, other than that, how is everybody? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. You okay? All right, hanging in there. Alhamdulillah. Um, good news, updates on the on the space, on the new space. The most important part of the whole space, the water lines have been installed for the coffee machine. So <laughs> the most important part by far. Uh, and the bathrooms, they need water too. But you know, the coffee shop is more important. So they're, ma- they're making moves, alhamdulillah. It'll be a... Uh, it'll be a quick uh, few weeks, inshallah, until they make some major... Progress, uh, construction I found out is very uh, slow down, speed up, depending on supplies and all that kind of stuff. So I know you guys are all being very patient. I know that this is not the living room that your parents would uh, entertain your proposal in, right? So you know, there's the, there's, the, uh, there's the living room you actually use and then there's like the fancy one that no one can touch anything in. So that's not what this is. This is like the attic, but alhamdulillah, it's good. <laughs> Someone was actually telling me the other day that, you know, there are memories that we're creating here. Because we didn't anticipate being here this long. We were originally told that we'd be done by December. But as you know, with construction, you know, it's never the case. So we thought, you know, okay, we'll be here for a couple weeks and then we'll be in the new space. But it's just the way that things roll. Um, But alhamdulillah, I think a lot of the memories that we've created here and just sort of the, the sincerity of being here, there's really no other reason for you to be here. 
like the the carpet's not comfortable it's not particularly clean there's a lot of i mean it's clean it's not like impure but there's not like you know there's dust and stuff and everyone's like is there a bathroom i'm like depends on what you mean by bathroom like we can you know define that word very differently so you know it just shows mashallah you know if you come here to to get closer to uh, to Allah and to your creator then, uh, and to your community as well, then that means that there's some sincerity there, right? Because there's really no other reason to come. Um, unless you came for half a shawarma sandwich, then, you know, <laughs> I could just spot you that. Uh, you don't have to listen to a whole lecture for that one. But, alhamdulillah. So, uh, last week, we covered the, or we finished the coverage of our discussion of Surah Al-Fatiha, which is the first chapter in the Qur'an the opening chapter in the Qur'an, Surah Al-Fatiha, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us, um, you know, many different things to think about, a lot of different themes that we that we explored, okay? So we talked about Allah's introduction of Himself, like when Allah introduces Himself, like what does that mean? And how did Allah choose to introduce Himself? We all have choices in how we introduce ourselves, and Allah ta'ala chose to introduce Himself in, uh, in, in certain ways, with certain characteristics, namely His mercy, his lordship, his compassion, um, and, and you know, and then of course after that, his his majesty and his authority on the day of judgment, and then the the surah finishes or concludes in our recitation of it um, by us making a du'a. We're making a plea to Allah. Oh Allah, you know, allow us and and give us the gift and the and the and the privilege of being from those people uh, and amta alayhim, those people that you have favored. And don't let us, please protect us from being from those people that have somehow wandered into the into the area of your displeasure and your wrath, or please protect us from those that have gone astray. So we finished, uh, you know, this conversation. And the one thing that when I first read um, some tafsir with some teachers that, that I had, the interesting thing that I learned was that the Quran is so multi-layered and it's so multifaceted. So you read it, you read a surah. And chapters in Quran, by the way, they were revealed to the Prophet ﷺ and they were organized and categorized with the angel Jibreel. So every year, I don't know if you guys know this, but every year when the Prophet ﷺ was uh, in the month of Ramadan, he would review his Quran with the angel Jibreel. So that's kind of also behind, one of the reasons behind the idea of Taraweeh prayer covering the entirety of the Quran. It is, in its own way, a unique sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. That during that month, he would review whatever Qur'an he knew. And then, of course, in the last year of his life, when uh, Ramadan came and the Qur'an had been completed, he had reviewed it two times with Angel Jibreel. And the way that they would review and the way that they would understand organization of the Qur'an is that Jibreel would give the Prophet an indication of which ayat would go where, and of course ayat are tied to chapters, so they would know the surahs by the different by different names. The names that we have now, uh, some of them are divinely mentioned, some of them are not, but the organization we believe as Muslims is divine, right? So the Quran is not just like an anthology. You, you know, you go to literature class in college, and they have like, we're gonna read from an author, and we're gonna read a, a group of their works, and they choose kind of the order and all that. But the order of the Qur'an, the sequence of the surahs, is not something that's accidental. It is strategic. It is divine. Allah Ta'ala set down this order uh, in His divine wisdom, subhanAllah. So, when you read the Qur'an, there are like self-contained messages. But then there are also like these really interesting 
continuous messages that go through. So as you read the end of one surah, one of the miracles of the Qur'an is that as you begin the next surah, if it's divinely ordered, then what do we believe? That there's some sort of connection between the two messages. Okay? So it's interesting, because the end of Surah Al-Fatiha finishes with mentioning how many groups of people? Three, very good. Right, it's easy to fall into two, but it's three. What are the three groups again? Those that Allah has? Those that Allah has? Favored or blessed? Not those who you have? Or have earned your anger, and nor those who have gone astray. So there's actually three groups of people, three in three categories of personalities that are mentioned in Surah Al-Fatiha. Then you go to Surah Al-Baqarah, second chapter, the one that when everybody hears the Imam recite it outside Ramadan, Al-Flamim, everyone gets scared. <laughs> right? They have like a life alert that they press to let their family know they're not going to be home for a while. They like press the button. It's a long surah, 286. Verses. It can go on quite a bit, okay? And it's, 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 it's profound. It's so long that there's not just one or two. There's multiple themes that are self-contained in this surah. The first theme of Surah Al-Fatiha, or the, of Surah Al-Baqarah, the second chapter, is directly connected to the last theme of Surah Al-Fatiha. It's like, it's like reading the next book in a series. You finish the first chapter of the Qur'an, and you, you kind of finish Surah Al-Fatiha and you're like, okay, ameen. I hope that I'm from the people that Allah has favored. But then the question naturally begs to be asked, which is what? How do I know? Like, how do I know? The worst part about trying to do something right, like the most difficult part, not the worst, but the, the, the toughest part, is not being able to know if you're doing it right or not. What's the rubric? I mean, what's the first thing that we asked in school when the teacher would start teaching us something? We'd raise our hand and say what? Is this going to be on the exam, right? Because we want to know what we're going to be assessed by. We want to know what we're going to be graded by. Okay? So when we are thinking about this, this very beautiful title, the ones that Allah has favored, the ones that Allah has blessed, the believer's heart starts to get a little bit curious. Okay, well, how can I ensure? How can I make sure that I am from this category? And Allah Ta'ala doesn't disappoint, of course. Allah Subh'ana Ta'ala continues in Surah Al-Baqarah, and he starts to describe three groups of people. It's not a coincidence. He finished Fatiha with three, and now he's starting Baqarah with three. And the three groups, if you overlay them like transparencies, I don't know if you, I'm, I'm really old, so if you guys know what transparency is, okay? I know you guys grew up like in the smart board generation, but like back in the day, they used to have a box that had a light bulb on it, all right? And there was a piece of plastic that was like printed on, and then the teacher could write stuff with like a dry erase marker. And it was like the best day of the week when they busted out the projector, right? <laughs> so you can overlay the three groups like transparencies over one another and you'll find something very interesting. Is that Allah mentions one group in Baqarah that is clearly the one that is guided. That is the one that is benefiting from their relationship with Allah. And then Allah mentions two groups after that. And those two groups are two individual categories that in their own unique way have sabotaged their own relationship with the Almighty, right? So it's very interesting when you keep reading it. So we're gonna get started insha'Allah. What's the first, uh, what's the first verse of Surah Al-Baqarah? Anyone know? What is it? Any fat here? Alif Lam Okay, Alif Lam very good. What are those? For those of us who don't know, what are those? 
Alif, Lam, and Mim. What are those? Arabic. Mystery letters. You're getting a little bit, you get a little bit like, you know, game night was Friday night, right? Uh, mystery letters, that's, that's what we can call them, but let's just very, like, essentially, minimal, minimally, they're Arabic letters. Alif, Lam, and Mim. Or as Musa says, A, L, and M, okay? I'm trying to explain to him that, no, we, Arabic is a different language. He's trying, to, he's trying to learn through, I don't know, he's either a genius or he's really far off. So... So, Arabic letters, okay? Now, what's interesting about the Arabic language is that, and particularly about the time that it was being revealed to the Prophet ﷺ, is that the Arabic language is a language that, per its usage and per its, its you know, the portfolio of literature that's in Arabic, it is a very ornate, it is a very deep, you know, language when it comes to its grammar when it comes to its, uh, its, its formation, when it comes to language, when it comes to its meaning, the ability to derive multiple meanings. Anyone here playing Wordle? You guys know what that game is? I'm not, but I have friends who are. I'm friends with nerds. Okay, so <laughs> Wordle is a game. It's like a, you know, I guess it's like a word guessing game. And it's funny because it's in English. And in English, it's kind of like, okay, you guess some letters. Hopefully you can figure it out. That's the way the game works. I jokingly said to my friend who's an Arabic teacher, oh, they should make an Arabic version of Wordle. Wordal, right? <laughs> and he, he seriously came back to me after, after, like, after I jokingly said that, he goes, it would be impossible. Because each Arabic word, based on the voweling and based on the position of the different letters and based on the form, the verb form, can have like hundreds of different variations. Okay? Spelled the same, but you know, virtually different. So the point being is that this language, something about it, subhanAllah, is that it has the capacity to be extremely complex and very beautiful in its complexity. And the Quraysh, the people that the Prophet Sallallahu uh, who his, his lineage came from, right, Banu Hashim, the tribe that he lived with, the people that he was surrounded by, the time that he was in, they were the ultimate uh, wordsmiths and linguists in Arabic in the history of the Arabic language. Like this was the height of Arabic, okay? It was at this time. So subhanAllah, when the Prophet ﷺ starts receiving revelation, when he starts getting this message from Allah through Jibreel and he goes to the Quraysh and he starts to recite some of it to them, without like fully understanding or knowing exactly what it is that he's saying, right? Because they're listening and it's something that's so beautiful and it's so shocking. The Prophet himself was not somebody who could read or write. He didn't have that ability, he didn't have that skill. Unlettered, they called it. The Prophet he stumped them with his possession of this beautiful expression. Because they were like, we know this language best. Like, we are the masters of this language. So much so, that when the Prophet ﷺ would, reveal, would recite Qur'an to these people, they would actually bring from amongst themselves, like, their best linguists and poets to come and try to challenge and to go toe-to-toe with the revelation of Allah ﷻ. They thought it was just against the Prophet ﷺ. They used to call him a poet. They used to call him, you know, a, a smooth talker. They used to even call him so much so they used to call him like a magician. They used to call him like a, a, a soothsayer. 
someone who was able to quickly manipulate people with his language, right? But they didn't realize that this was actually the revelation from God that they were going up against. So the Prophet ﷺ would have these stories. There are many narrations that highlight him going up against these like poets and these master linguists. And every single time this would happen, the Arabs, those masters of this language, would be completely dumbfounded by how beautiful and how complex and how astute the recitation and revelation of Quran was. Now, what's interesting is that there are many stories where that happens, but Allah Ta'ala begins with Al-Baqarah with kind of the opposite experience. Allah Ta'ala could have revealed anything to begin with Al-Baqarah, right? What's one thing that convinces a lot of people of things is when they hear like prophecies, right? Everyone gets really, like when you're, it's like a past 11 p.m. and you're on Reddit, <laughs> or you're like scrolling through something, and there's like a person who's like, you know, uh, I read and hear that this time and this year, this is going to happen. And it catches fire. And then you take it to all of your Muslim WhatsApp groups and it catches fire there. And it just like, you know, it, it's interesting for people to prophesize about what might happen in the future and for it to be vague enough for it to be found true is something that can rattle like the hearts of people and their belief system and all that. So Allah Ta'ala could have, in theory, started Surah Al-Baqarah with any content that he wanted to, Azawajal. He could have. He could have started it by addressing all of the different miracles of science that, have, that were not known at the time. He could have talked about many things that were unknown to the Arabs that later would become known to them. There are many prophecies in the Quran, right? The conquering of Rome, etc. These are all there. But subhanAllah, what we find is that Allah Ta'ala begins with Al-Baqarah with three letters. Alif, Lam, and Meem. What do you guys think this means? A secret message, okay. Some scholars of Tafsir thought this. Some scholars of Tafsir, they proposed that maybe there's something hidden, right? So they manipulated the wording a little bit with voweling, not manipulated, but they read it in different ways to see, is there some sort of verb or word that I'm missing or something that I'm not catching? And they did hypothesize and speculate. They didn't like say, aha, I found it. But they said, maybe it means this. So a lot of us, if we've ever come across that, we're like, oh, maybe it means this. Okay. But you know what's crazy, subhanAllah, is that at the end of all of that speculation, and it was sincere. It wasn't speculating for the sake of like trying to be profound, right? I'm going to tweet this. It was just like, I'm genuinely curious. What does this mean? At the end of it, they finished with Allah knows best. Like, we don't know. We can't really tie this one down. We don't have any narrations. We don't have any other Quran that references. We don't have any hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. None of the Sahaba who were close to the Prophet ﷺ who were master of Quran know for sure what it meant. Like, we don't have any of that. So they wrapped up all of their investigation and all of their research by saying, this could mean something, this to this. But what I know my heart is going to settle with is that Allah knows best. Okay? It's kind of interesting though. Imagine if you guys came to this talk tonight ready to hear something that was intelligible and that could be interpreted and understood and taken. And I just started saying English letters. A, B, C. Right? Imagine. Even that has some sort of order because that's in sequence, right? If I said like A, F, and Q, you'd be like, what? Is that, a, is, that a, is that some sort of like acronym? Is there some sort of like abbreviation for something? Right? And so the scholars, they, they, they hypothesize one thing that's very powerful. And, and it's interesting because this is happening in the beginning of the Qur'an. 
It's not happening in the middle. It does happen other times. 29 to be exact, it starts surahs in the Quran. But it's happening now in the beginning. And it's very interesting that to the masters of the Arabic language, Allah has introduced three letters that cannot be defined or understood. You guys think that you're pretty good at speaking English? Anyone here confident in like reading, speaking? No? Sure you are. Come on, don't be mean to yourself, right? You guys think you can carry on a conversation? Have you guys ever been to a place where you cannot speak the language? Okay. Like I recently, I recently, uh, with my family, we took them to a country where I know none of the language. Like zero. I get by in Turkey. In, in Middle East, I'm okay, right? I was in Mexico. And I was like, wow, I really am white. Like, I really don't know. And like, I was just like, you know, gracias, por, uh, por favor. I called, I called, there was a girl who was making my coffee and I said, gracias, senora. I said, senorita, right? She's like, senora, right? She got like all offended. Apparently it's like a very elderly, I don't know. I got it wrong, all right? I very quickly got Google Translate ready, okay? I'm not trying to get, you know, an extra shot of espresso in my drink, if you know what I mean, right? So when you, when you go from being in a situation where you are totally and completely confident and fluent in communication and in understanding and in listening and comprehending, and you are removed from that comfort into a place where you don't know what's going on, you know what you feel? You know what emotion you feel? Humility. You're like, you're like brought down, like I'm six foot three, six foot four on a good day. <laughs> brought down to the ground, right? And Spanish is like a very quick language too. So there's kids coming up to me saying things and I'm like, what? And I'm literally trying to record it in slow-mo and then like listen to it because I am so unintelligent. And that's what that realization taught me is that here I am, right? Very, you know, comfortable, very accessible in my, in my home, right? Where I am in America. But the minute that I take a flight, it was two hours away, guys. Two hour flight. Southwest, I can't even order food without telling someone that I can't have bacon on the avocado toast. Like they walked away and I was like, oh God, there might be bacon on that. And we had to, you know, figure out a way to go and, and save ourselves from, from the, the dreaded bacon, right? <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that language has a way of humbling you. Language has a way of humbling you. So with these people who were very advanced and very knowledgeable in the complexities of Arabic, Allah Ta'ala reveals three letters. And just as confused as we are about what these letters mean, guess who else was confused? They were. It's one thing for us to be confused because we're all students of knowledge, we're students of Arabic, some better than others, some have no knowledge, some have more, but we're nowhere near the Quraysh. Like, say what you want about Abu Jahl, right? Bad guy, knew Arabic pretty well. Say what you want about Abu Lahab, mentioned the Quran as being in hellfire, don't want to be him. But his Arabic skills were good. I mean, they were masterful, okay? But even he would hear this and say, what does this mean? What does this mean? And when you come across something in life where you don't know what the meaning is, you have two options. The first option is to dismiss it as what? Nonsense. Gibberish. This is crazy. This doesn't make sense. And you see this. What happens when a person engages with somebody and maybe it's in their environment, 
and they don't speak the same language or they can't understand them? How do they dismiss it as gibberish? What have we heard? What has been a popularized statement from people who don't want other languages present in America? What do they say to those people? Go back to your country. That's just another way of saying, I can't understand you. And I'm too embarrassed to admit and to humble myself and to say that I'm the problem. So instead of saying I'm the problem, what do I say? You're the problem, go back. You should speak, if you wanna live here, speak English. By the way, this exists everywhere. I was in Turkey, we were speaking Arabic and there was a person who came, this old Turkish Ammu, may Allah bless him. And he started yelling at us in Turkish. My Turkish isn't that good, right? I know like, I know discount. <laughs> I know please and thank you. I know some like, you know, I wouldn't call them, they're not quite pickup lines because you use them on men, but they're like very loving statements that you use, right, to other, like my tailor, like I'm like basically borderline romantic with him, mashallah. Well, it's not a romantic, okay? He's my tailor, right? So you gotta make sure he does it right, okay? But I know a little bit. This guy starts yelling at us. So then this little Syrian boy comes up to us and he speaks Turkish too, mashallah. And he goes, do you want me to translate for you? We're like, yeah, please. It's me, Shah Nasr, Mufti Muntasir. And then, like, ironically, like, one of the greatest, like, scholars in the history of modern era Islam was sitting there with us, too. Turkish scholar. And he goes, yeah, he's really upset with you. And we said, why? And he goes, because you're speaking Arabic. And I said, huh? And he said, yeah, he's telling, he's saying that you need to learn Turkish or leave. <laughs> and I was like, is that you, Donald Trump? Like, is that you? <laughs> You know, like it, it was shocking to have that experience in a Muslim country, but, but it exists everywhere. And, and again, it's not so quick that you can write it off as like, you know, uh, uh, evil, right? But it is a manifestation of arrogance, right? It is. So there's two routes. You don't understand something, you can respond, which usually what we do, we say like, this doesn't make sense. If something happens to me and I don't get it, it doesn't make sense. Versus... The second route, which is the route that the heart of the believer does, which is something happens, or in this case, something is said, and I don't get it. And instead of me saying, you know what? I don't understand this, so there's no way that it actually has any significance or any meaning. The heart of the believer is so humble and so, you know, so modest in, in, in their intellectual capacity that the heart of the believer says, you know what? I don't know everything. I, I don't know everything. My knowledge is not unlimited. In fact, I learn new things every day. There's even like internet trends. I was today years old when I learned. There's a lot of pretty embarrassing things that you learn even into your 30s and 40s and 50s, right? There's that TV show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And the whole allure behind that show is that most adults maybe you aren't smarter in some ways than that fifth grader. So how can a human be so confident and so convinced that they know everything and that anything that comes to them, if it doesn't make sense already, if it doesn't fit in a box, that it must be nonsense. So this verse does a lot more than we think it does. A lot of us just kind of say, Elif, Lam, Mim, and we go past it. But read it next time and think to yourself, what is Allah reminding me here? What is Allah reminding me here? Allah is reminding me a full-grown adult who knows the alphabet, that he can send down a verse of his book, the Quran, and that verse can have three Arabic letters in it, 
And as literate and as fluent as I am in whatever language, I cannot understand what the meaning of it is. Now that's for you and I. Imagine being the most fasih and fluent and literate of the Arabs and getting this. This verse, verse number one, serves as a gate. Because everything after this point, there's a prerequisite. The Qur'an is a book of guidance. Allah Ta'ala tells us that. He mentions it in, in the next couple of verses. Right? He mentions that this book is meant to guide you. But there are prerequisites to guidance. Guidance is not for everybody. The same guidance can hit everybody in the face, but not everyone will take it. Right? Information is known. Do some of us know things that we shouldn't do, but we still do them? Yes or no? Do some of us know things that we should do and we don't do them? Okay? So guidance and misguidance usually is not the issue. The issue or information. The issue is whether or not a person has the internal ability to take whatever information they're given and act on it in the right way. That's what guidance is. Right? So Allah Ta'ala begins this surah by checking everyone's humility. Checking everybody. Are you going to read this verse and think to yourself, oh, this verse is just three letters. Let's quickly move to the next one. Even in like tafsir, like we're spending, we spent now 30 minutes on three letters. It's kind of crazy. But perhaps the most powerful lesson of tonight is this lesson. That you could sit here and read the Quran and think that you know, but Allah Ta'ala tells you there will always be something you don't know. Always. There will never come a time where your knowledge will be so vast that you can say comfortably, I'm not going to learn anything today. And it's that realization that will allow your heart to always be guided in every situation. The minute that a person says, I already know what this is all about, then the, the heart is locked. Right? Allah Ta'ala, he actually references this later in the Quran. He says, don't these people think about the Quran? Don't people like ponder on it? Like when it's sent to them, don't they think about it? And then he says on the opposite, Or is it the case that their hearts are locked up? That they hear these verses and they can't understand? Have you guys ever prayed Tarawih next to somebody that's just like a river flowing out of their eyes? They're so emotional. Have you, ever, have you ever done that? You guys ever seen someone crying when they hear the Quran? You guys ever heard like an imam reciting and they came across a passage that was so moving that they started to cry, they couldn't, they couldn't keep going, right? I remember like before I studied a little bit and was able to translate a little bit and understand a little bit, when the imam started like choking up, I was like, is he dying? Like give him water. <laughs> I didn't understand like what was happening, right? We would be driving in the car and my mom is next to me and we're listening to uh, one of my favorite surah, Surah Qaf. And there's a very powerful emotional passage in Surah Qaf and my mom would just start crying. And I, I remember as a kid, it's really embarrassing, right? Don't judge me. Allah, does, Allah didn't judge me, so you can't judge me either, right? I was a child. I would turn it off. <laughs> no six-year-old wants to see their mom crying. Like, as she would start crying, I'm like, stop. Are you Okay. She's like, yeah, yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm like, you're not. <laughs> Stop gaslighting yourself. You know, like. But then subhanAllah, as I got older, 
And as I started to understand what the, what the Quran, what the, the Surah Qaf was saying, we would listen and cry together. <laughs> right? Why? Because it's almost childish for a person to think that there's no meaning behind what they don't understand. It's actually intellectually childish. And, and we can keep going on this topic. We've talked about this. Things will happen in your life, and you will be standing there saying, like, what is the reason? Why is this happening to me? You'll be sitting here and saying, why on earth is Allah putting me through this or doing this to me? Why? And just remember at that moment, Alif Lam Me. Like, you can't even, you don't even know the three, you don't even know what these three letters mean. How can you understand that one hour, one week, one month, one year of tribulation or turbulence or providence in your life, right? Alif Lam Mim is like the gate check for the rest of the Quran. If you want to have access to what's here, then you have to check yourself. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us humble. So what then does Allah Ta'ala continue with? Allah Ta'ala says that this is the book about which there is no doubt. It's very interesting. Again, I want us to be thinkers. When you read the Quran, you're listening, but you're also thinking, okay? So Allah Ta'ala says, this is the book, or that is the book, La raiba fi. There is no doubt. There is no doubt. Anyone here know someone named La Raib? You know someone named La Raib? It's usually it usually means no doubt. That's what they're getting this from, right? Which is kind of cool, right? It's kind of a cool name. I don't know if it's necessarily like a real name. But anyways, okay. Don't mean to offend you for name La Raib. But La Raiba fi. What do we not have doubt in this book about? This is a very important claim. It's a very important thing to begin with. Again, Allah could have just began with anything else. Allah could have said that this is the book that will guide everybody. This is the book that has mercy. And all of these statements would have been accurate. So why then does Allah begin his book by saying that there's no doubt in this book? Share, everybody. There's more than one right answer, so share. Why does Allah begin? We're reading this and we're like, okay, I want to get serious. I want to read the Quran. I want to, I want to get close to Allah. All right. This is the book in which there is no doubt. What should that do to the heart of the reader? Huh? Humbles? Okay, how? In what way? What's that? You don't know? Okay, well, no, it's okay. Explore it a little bit. It humbles us. Why? Because, well, one of the things that you inspired me when you said it humbles us is that there's really nothing that we can say that we do that has no doubt. Like everything that we say about what we've done has doubt. Come over for dinner. What are you making? Making this. It'll be good. Inshallah. <laughs> like we don't have certainty about anything, right? Are you going to be there? Inshallah. Inshallah. Right? You say inshallah because inshallah. you know that what you're trying to do is you're trying to communicate that like, I don't know. Like, I hope so, but I'm not certain about it. Okay? Allah Ta'ala begins this book, subhanAllah, by mentioning to the reader that in your life, you will be surrounded by things that you will not have certainty about. Mm. What are things that you don't have certainty about, guys? Risk. Risk? Yeah, sure. That's fine. Uh, We're humans. Okay, what else? The ground we walk on. on. All right, we're just getting real now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, the reason that Allah Ta'ala destined something. What else, everybody? Anywhere from this side? The shawarma side? How many children? Over here, over here, over here. What's that? <laughs> marriage and relationships. relationships. Okay, marriage and relationships. Big uncertainty there. What else? Number and yeah. gender of children. One second, Habib. One second. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Huh? Death. Death. Very good. SubhanAllah. Anyone else? Number and gender of children. Okay. How many children might have? The number, the gender. Okay. Huh? What's going to happen in an hour? It just got super real. SubhanAllah. Oh, when the hour. Okay. So, we are surrounded by things of moments of uncertainty. Absolutely. If, if you try to plan something, and if you try to, there's always that seed of like, I hope, okay? Whether it's applying for a new job, whether it's getting married, whether it's moving somewhere, we constantly have to take what we call leaps of faith, okay? We put our trust in Allah and we move forward. Allah Ta'ala is telling us in the beginning that the Quran, in engaging with this book, is the one thing that when you engage with it and its lessons and its meaning, you're not going to have to have any uncertainty about it. And what that does to the heart of the believer, when I tell you that it is certain, right? It's like when someone is like, hey, I can give you a ride. And you're like, are you sure? And they're like, consider it done. The anxiety in your heart starts to just disappear. Like when someone tells you that you should be, have utter conviction that you will not have to worry about it, right? Or someone's like, I'll take care of it. And they write the check and they post date it. They're like, just deposit it on this date. Like that level of certainty is so convincing. It's so relieving. It's just so, it makes you feel like there's no problem anymore. Allah Ta'ala is telling you in this book, you're not going to have any issues with that. When you engage with the Quran, it's the one thing that you'll turn to. Your faith in Allah is the one thing that you can turn to and you can know that there's nothing doubtful about this. I don't even know what I'm going to eat tomorrow. I don't know where I'm going to be working next year. I don't know if I'm going to be married or this or that. I don't know any, right? Assuming someone's single. Inshallah, stay married, right? <laughs> but assuming someone's saying, I don't know if I'm going to be married next month, next year. I don't know when this is all going to happen. I don't know what the status of this is. Health. I mean, if there's one thing the pandemic taught us, it was definitely, I don't know, right? I don't know. People are asking me all kinds of questions about things, and my answer is, I really have no idea. What do you mean? I don't know, right? But if someone told me, like, is the Quran the book of Allah? You say, yeah. Alhamdulillah. 100%. Or who also brought the Quran? The Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Right? The Prophet Sallallahu Means what? That lack of doubt, Habib, just a little bit of quiet, inshallah. The Prophet Sallallahu bringing the Quran to you is somebody who has no, there's no doubt in his character and his deliverance of the book itself. And this is something that Allah Ta'ala strategically did by design. Remarkable. The Prophet was somebody that had zero, zero ability. No one had any ability to call out or to talk about his character or his intelligence or anything that would inhibit his ability to deliver this message from Allah. So much so, I'll tell you a story. The Prophet when he was a young man, he was shepherding some animals. And there was a festival that the Arabs would have. And the Prophet ﷺ, not because he wanted to go to the festival for any other reason, but because he was somebody who wanted to spend time with his community, his family members were there, etc. The Prophet ﷺ, he decided he wanted to go to this festival. The problem with this festival, and this is something for us to learn, is that not everything in the festival was something that was befitting of a Muslim, right? Let alone a Prophet of God. Okay, now the Prophet saw some, of course, if you guys ever watched something or been somewhere where you weren't even aware that stuff like that was going to be there, and you're like, fast forward, right? 
It just catches you off guard. The Prophet ﷺ had no intention of being in a place where this stuff would happen. His character was sublime. So what does he do? The Prophet ﷺ makes plans to go to this festival. And as he goes, subhanAllah, he tells the story himself. He says that I, as I approached the festival, I started to get real sleepy. And he said, and I laid down, I decided that I would just take a nap. I would take a little bit of a rest before I went. And I laid down and I closed my eyes and I woke up and before I knew it, the whole thing was over. This was before prophethood. This was not after his, 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 his messengership had begun. This was before prophethood. Later he tells us, subhanAllah, that this was Allah Ta'ala protecting him from being in an environment that later on, imagine that he's reciting Quran to these people and they're like, you used to go to the festival with us, man. Who are you? You guys ever been that person? You start praying and your family starts calling you like, Mulan <laughs> right? Oh, the sheikh, like this and that, you know? Mullah, and you're like, no, 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 I'm just praying. And they're like, no, 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 please give us fatwas. You're like, this is not nice, you know? It's not very nice to talk to someone like that. It happens, right? Jokingly, serious, however you want to take it. But imagine, had Allah not pristinely protected this character of the Prophet Muhammad what could have happened? So we have no doubt in a few things. We have no doubt that this is the book of Allah. I even do, I, I took a... In, um, I'm not really like the biggest math brain. Actually, you know what's crazy? SubhanAllah. I'm not bad at math. And that's not being arrogant. I'll tell you something. As a kid in elementary school, I was told that I wasn't good at math. And so I believed it. And then I like lived real life and I have to do like math for like life, like budgeting and all that. I'm pretty good. Alhamdulillah. Okay. So my teacher was straight up messed up. Okay. So let me just tell you something. Okay. So in college, I got my degree in education and English education at that. And uh, you have to take one math class or quantitative science. So instead of math, I took logic. Logic is obviously also its own like mathematical science in a way. And so I engaged with this teacher in my logic class who was an atheist. Atheist, I don't believe in God, etc. And I, you know, we had, a, we had a good relationship actually, right? Because he knew me as being like the, I was like the, you guys ever seen that show, The Real World? Back in the day, there was always that one religious guy. I was like that one religious guy in that class. He would always pick on me, right? In a good way. We had a good relationship. But you know what's crazy? When we talked about, there's a whole science in logic about narration and transmission. There's an entire science about transmission. So they talk about this, like, how can we believe that something has been transmitted over time? And really, it's a very important science. If you think about history, like, history is just records of narration. If you think about it. Right? Like we just believe what people have told other people and have written down about certain events. And this is where, you know, anyways, different conversation for another day. But history is something that is preserved through the trust of transmission. So this logic professor is talking about transmission. He's saying that when you think about transmission, it is the one thing that gives a lot of strength to an argument. A lot of strength. And so he said, and these are his words, not mine. He said that one thing that comes to mind about the pride of transmission is the Qur'an. He said this. And I looked up and I'm like, what? <laughs> and he said that, he goes, historically, the Qur'an that the Prophet Muhammad had is the same Qur'an that is present today. He goes, the only thing that would make a person a believer in Islam versus not is whether or not the person believes that that Qur'an was sent by Allah in the first place. But he said, like, there is no 
academically viable and academically honest doubt in the transmission of the Quran from the Prophet until now. So if you know a Hafiz, thank them. Okay? Because really the science of Tahfil is what saved and preserved through Allah's wisdom this book. And that's why Allah Ta'ala said what? That the book is for me, and we will protect we will protect it. Right? Allah Ta'ala made this promise. So thank your Hafizabs and Hafizabets, okay, inshallah. Alright? So Allah Ta'ala promises us that there's no doubt in this. And this is something that gives a lot of strength and a lot of comfort in the heart of the believer. And then Allah Ta'ala says, It is a never-ending guidance. But then he puts a qualifier. It's not a guidance for everybody. This book is not going to guide everybody. And this is not a statement of prohibition or a statement of gatekeeping, or a statement of inhibition. It is a statement of qualification. That Allah Ta'ala did require that there is something required to be guided. Question for you guys. Was there something that you heard about Islam, Quran, Hadith, the Prophet's life, earlier on in your life that made no sense, you were too ashamed to talk about it, but you always wondered why? And then later on, after reading, learning, maybe there was like an article with Sheikh Omar Salman, Yaqeen, or something, it changed your mind, and you said, oh, it makes a lot of sense now. Anybody? Raise your hand if that was the case with you. Okay? What changed? Knowledge. What changed? Anyone? Someone raise your hand back there. Knowledge. Knowledge? Okay, what do you mean by knowledge? Understanding more about what topic is. Okay. Did the text itself change? Did the text itself, was it manipulated to address your question? The text was the same. And it's actually crazy because when you look at the Quran, sometimes you engage with a verse and that verse has no emotional impact on you, no intellectual, like at the stage in your life, there's really no, it's not reverberating with anything. It's not echoing because there's nothing, there's no chamber for it to echo in, right? And then something happens. Whether it's a milestone in your life, something you gained or something you lost, and we don't even know what those are, actually, to be honest, right now. Something happens, and all of a sudden, that same verse engages with you in a way that never, ever, it never hit you like that before. And when the scholars talk about why reading Qur'an so frequently is so important, they bring up this point. And they say that the Qur'an doesn't change, sure, but you do. And so if you want the Qur'an to resonate with you, you're constantly changing. Are you the same person now that you were 10 years ago? So when you, when you read the Qur'an as a college student or as a high schooler or the last, like Sunday school, and that's where your last impression on the Qur'an was made, right? You're like eight years old and you're like, I don't get this. I'm going to go back to watching like Sesame Street or something, you know, like, I don't understand what's going on. I'm going to go play with this. And that's for a lot of people. They make their final assessment of the viability of this divine scripture before they're even spiritually or emotionally or mentally mature enough to like engage with it, right? Let alone sincere enough, right? Many people that have come to me saying, I'm not Muslim anymore. Like many people have come to me saying that. The first question I asked them, when's the last time we read the Quran? And they're like, it's been a while. How long? Five years, 10 years. And I'm not shaming anybody. May Allah Ta'ala bring everybody back, right? To Islam. My own eldest sister, by the way, Melatha, I'll bring her back to Islam. I asked them that. I said, when's the last time you read the Quran? The answer is never recently. 
Never. And when we dig a little bit deeper, and again, I'm not like trying to like, like trap them, like lock the doors, you know, like you're not going to leave until you come back to Islam. I'm just like, look, just, I'm just curious. This is like, I love protect. it's like an exit interview. Like I want to know. It's never about the message of the Quran itself. Never. It's never about the life of the Prophet himself. Right? The reason why the people that I've engaged with have left Islam, who have left Islam, has to do with something outside of those two oceans of knowledge. It's something different. It's an experience. It's a misunderstanding. It's something. Okay? And their experiences are, are real. I'm not saying that I'm not telling them that, oh, it never happened. They're real. But it's not the Quran's fault, and it's not the fault of the Prophet. I find that interesting. So what then is the thing that gives people the ability to be guided? What is it? Allah Ta'ala tells us, Hudan lil, that land here means for, al-muttaqin. Those people who try their best to have taqwa. If you're searching for a relationship with Allah, you have started to unlock the Quran for your heart now. That's the, that's the prereq. It's almost like before you open it, this isn't the Quran, but if it was. Before you open it, you kind of have to ask yourself, like, am I ready for this? Because I might open this book and it might start to tell me something that I'm, I, I may not want to hear, right? The Quran might tell me that I'm drifting away and I got to check myself. The Quran might tell me that I'm being stingy. The Quran might tell me that I'm being arrogant. The Quran might tell me that I'm, or it might tell me something good about myself that I need to hear. But I need to make sure that the heart is ready to open this and to take what it's going to give me, right? That question being asked is establishing the characteristic of taqwa. Because the answer to that question, if you say, I want this, that means what? Oh Allah, I am re ready and willing to hear whatever it is you're going to tell me. It has nothing to do with what I want to hear. Oh Allah, tell me what I need to hear. Tell me what I need to know. And then you open the book and then you begin to give yourself that spiritual nutrition. Okay? So Allah Ta'ala says, Hudan lil-muttaqeen. And I've always found this to be very interesting. The greatest Islamophobes, those people who know the most about how to, uh, you know, politicize and, and engage in the disturbance of Muslim people's faith, um, they actually know more technical science about engaging with the Quran than most Muslims do. They, they know a lot. I once engaged with an Islamophobe at a university in the UK, and the guy was quoting, like, I thought he was Muslim for a second. I, like, zoned out. He was quoting tafsir, and I was like, subhanAllah, who's the shit? <laughs> I swear to God, dude, I was sitting there and I was just like listening and he's like quoting Sheikh this and you know, this stuff's here and this stuff's here and I'm like, wow, this guy's well read. And I'm just like, I wonder where he studied, you know, I'm looking at him, he's just kind of wearing like, you know, Western clothes and I'm like, oh, maybe it's Al-Zahari, maybe it's al right? Anyway, so, so I'm like, you know, I'm kind of engaging with him a little bit and then I find out the dude is like an, like an anti-Muslim, like anti-Islam, like leader in this part of the UK, and I'm like, no way. This guy's quoting tafsir that I've never even read, right? How can he be misguided? He knows more than I know, way more than I know. I mean, the greatest example is Shaytan. That's crazy. Can you imagine Shaytan not being Muslim? It's embarrassing, Shaytan. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Shaytan is not Muslim, not because of the reason most humans are not Muslim, by the way. People are not believers in God typically because they need some, what they believe, undeniable truth. Shaitan's seen it all. He's a part of the story. 
Can you imagine not believing in yourself? That's Shaytan. Shaytan has an intimate level of understanding of the unseen that it actually boggles your mind to think that he has the audacity to deny God. It makes no sense. And this is why when Allah talks about what it was that was able to push Shaytan out of the fold, right? Because a believer and a non-believer actually has very little to do with belief, but it has to do with submission, is that Shaytan was not able to submit. He was not able to humble himself. That was the problem. Allah gave him one task and he said no. Right? Once. The scholars say like Shaytan missed one sajda. How many have we missed? And he says, no, and Allah Ta'ala asks him, what prevented you? And instead of just humbling himself and saying, I was wrong or this and that, what did he say? I'm better than him. And a khayrun min. You created me from fire, you created from clay. Shaytan tried to rationalize with submission of God. That I will only submit if it makes sense to me. And that's what took him outside the fold. What did he lose? He didn't lose information, he lost taqwa. He lost it. At one point, he was one of the greatest worshippers of Allah from the realm of the unseen. And with that one arrogant moment, that slip, with no apology, no regret, no remorse, he moved himself outside of the people of taqwa into those people who are cursed. May Allah Ta'ala protect us. So we see here, very interesting, subhanAllah, in the first two ayat of this chapter, Allah Ta'ala reminds us something. This book has endless treasure. This book is an endless feast that will feed the soul in a way that no money, no relationship on this earth, nothing, no acquisition of material can ever satisfy. Like my Christian friends say, we all have a God-sized hole in our hearts. <laughs> I don't, it's a weird statement, but I like it, okay? So, you know, they once told me at Cracker Barrel when, when I was... Anyway, <laughs> the point being is what do they say? You have this appetite for Allah, spiritual appetite. You have this need that cannot be quenched or satisfied except by one thing, and that is Allah. And that's why he sends the Quran. That's why he gives us his Prophet Muhammad so that that thirst, that need can be satisfied, can be fulfilled. Think about it. I, we talked about this in, in the seminary the other day. In Ramadan, like, there's no better feeling than eating, right? Maybe sleeping. Okay? Eating and then sleeping. Top five feelings. Think about this. In Ramadan, you give up food and sleep, and you feel the best about your Islam the rest of the year. Same with Hajj. Hajj, you go, you give up money, you give up sleep, you eat whatever you can find. Okay? And you're like, I don't know if I ever want to leave this place. Because I've discovered... Iman and myself here that I've never, I can't even recognize who I am, right? Allah Ta'ala is saying that in each of you there is an appetite for the divine. There's a space for the divine that we keep trying to fill with other things and those things keep getting rejected and every time we try and the rejection happens we become more frustrated spiritually. But we're trying to put the wrong thing into the right place, right? Taqwa is what is going to open that portion of our heart for the Qur'an. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us Muslim with the thing. In the next session, inshallah, 
Because again, we're still not answering how. How can I become this person? Allah Ta'ala gives us five characteristics, five things that make us from amongst those people of taqwa. And that will open up understanding of the Quran for us. We ask Allah Ta'ala to accept from us. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us people of taqwa. We ask Allah Ta'ala to untangle any of the knots of spiritual state that we have within us, any of the difficulties we're going through, any of the moments in life that are troubling to us. Oh Allah, we ask you to un- unravel those for us, oh Allah. We ask Allah to give us the courage to be able to conquer the things that we are struggling with. Oh Allah, we ask you to give us the patience to deal with things that are testing of us, Ya Rabbi Alameen. Oh Allah, uh, as a community tonight, we have one of our own who has lost his father. We ask you, oh Allah, to shower him with your mercy, Ya Rabbi Alameen. Oh Allah, we ask you to give his family patience, Ya Rabbi Alameen. Oh Allah, we ask you to grant all of his family, everyone who knew his father, everyone who loved his father, everyone who had a relationship with his father, we ask you to grant all of them companionship of the Prophet in the highest level of Jannah, Ya Rabbil Alameen, Ameen, Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Jazabullah khair everybody, subhanakallah, alhamdulillah, ilaha illa anta, nastaghfirullah, wa natubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh.